This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. I want to tell you about a building. It's a pretty modest structure, a squat office building about five stories tall, and it's on the outskirts of Georgetown, the capital of the Cayman Islands. And except for the palm trees and the tropical chic architecture, it's fairly unremarkable. But that building, Ugland House, sits at the very heart of the global financial system. In fact, 20,000 companies from every corner of the world have it as their registered address. Barack Obama used to talk about Ugland House all the time. And I've said before, either this is the largest building in the world or the largest tax scam in the world. Ugland House has become a symbol for the topsy-turvy world of offshore finance. The system works like a funhouse mirror, stretching and shrinking things until they don't make sense. It's why on paper, one of the world's biggest exporters of bananas is a frigid island off the coast of Britain. Or why besides the United States, Canadian companies invest the most money in tiny Barbados. You'd think maybe China or Mexico or France, but nope. billion goes to an island that has about as many people on it as Saskatoon. And it's why 20,000 companies can all be registered in the same building with plenty of room to spare. And here's the thing about the offshore world. Canada helped build it. We were the essential middlemen. That Cayman Islands building is home to Maples & Carter, one of the premier offshore law firms. And that was co-founded by a Canadian. In fact, the entire enterprise of turning the Cayman Islands into a tax haven was done by Canadians. And if you dig just a bit deeper, you can see that vast swaths of the offshore world were created by Canadian banks, businessmen, and politicians who continue to profit from it today. And it's all at the expense of everyday people. Canadians like to think we're not big international players, but when it comes to tax havens, we're second to none. turned out of the banking bombshell causing shockwaves around the world. Three years ago, the Panama Papers were leaked. Believed to be the biggest data leak in history are exposing how some of the world's wealthiest and most powerful people, including leaders like Vladimir Putin, may be hiding billions offshore. The confidential files from a Panamanian law firm gave us the clearest picture up to that point of how the offshore financial system actually works. Some of Canada's most wealthy and powerful figures were caught up in the system. The list included three former PMs, Stephen Bronfman, one of Canada's wealthiest men and one of Trudeau's most important donors, and even the Queen. 
these leaks expose the blood and guts of the international finance system. This is the system that ties together all of the world's richest and most powerful people. The same institutions that serve major banks, financial titans, and multinational corporations are tied to fraudsters, terrorists, and kleptocrats. And at the beating heart of the whole thing sit these offshore havens, tiny places that wield enormous influence. If you want to understand how the world really works, you need to dig into this labyrinth of money, law firms, and shell companies. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. This season, we're doing this whole series on corruption, and an underlying assumption is that if you want to know the real stories that matter, all you have to do is see where the money is. And by that metric, this is the biggest story in the world. Numbers, um, the amounts of money estimated to be offshore are range between $7 trillion at the low end and $36 trillion at the high end. That's Nicholas Shackson a journalist and the author of Treasure Islands, Tax Havens and the Men Who Stole the World. But before we get to the entirety of that system, let's focus in on one small piece of that puzzle. He will go to court where he is expected to be charged in what's been described as a massive $8 billion Ponzi scheme. Before his arrest, Alan Stanford was best known for his Texas drawl, his lavish lifestyle, and the gobs of money he made. But the Stanford bank where he made all of his money was a fraud. The scheme itself was pretty straightforward. Stanford's bank would take in money from investors and promise generous returns, but those returns would come from money brought in from new investors. Everything would work out just fine as long as people didn't ask for their money back all at once. It was a straightforward Ponzi scheme. Stanford's fraud grew to over $7 billion in total, making it the second biggest Ponzi scheme ever uncovered, eclipsed by only Bernie Madoff. And he funneled a huge chunk of his fraudulent assets through Canada's own TD Bank. TD Bank's relationship with Stanford was odd from the get-go. Uh, well, to start with, Mr. Stanford was a personal bankrupt, so he was not fit and proper to run any bank at all. And that was in the public record. That's Martin Kenny. He's an international asset recovery lawyer based in the British Virgin Islands. And he's currently representing thousands of victims of Stanford's fraud in a lawsuit against TD Bank. He also happens to be Jason Kenny's brother, but that's neither here nor there. There was one aspect of Stanford's scheme that distinguished him from your average fraudster. Stanford's bank was based out of Antigua, one of the smallest countries in the Caribbean, and a place known internationally for its lax regulation. As his bank grew, Stanford's power in Antigua increased. By the late 90s, Stanford became by far the most powerful man on the island. He had so much money from the fraud that he was uh, basically running the economy there, employing so many people, building so many buildings with the monies he stole. And he went so far as to take over the banking regulator that was supposed to keep folks like him in line. So the regulated became the regulator of himself. Stanford began to use the regulator to shut down his competition and to make it easier for him to commit his fraud. Uh, he basically had Antigua as a captured state. In 1999, the U.S. Treasury Department went so far as to warn people not to do business with Antiguan banks. As a result, American banks refused to work with him. 
but TD appears to have ignored those warnings. Stanford's fraud likely wouldn't have been possible without TD Bank giving him access to American dollars. What is a poxy little bank in Antigua doing? Receiving money from its customers or victims from all over the world to Toronto in U.S. dollars. Why? What's the business purpose of that? 95% of the fraudulent gains flowed from Stanford's Antiguan bank into TD. Now, TD doesn't comment on matters before the courts, but in the past they've said that TD Bank had no knowledge that Stanford was engaged in fraudulent or illegal activities. And they say they were neither willfully blind or reckless as to whether those activities were taking place. In 2012, Stanford was convicted on multiple counts and sentenced to 110 years in an American prison. Few of Stanford's thousands of victims have seen any of their money returned, and the lawsuit against TD Bank is still working its way through the Ontario courts. The allegations against TD Bank and their deep involvement with a criminal based out of a captured tax haven actually has a lot of precedence. As it turns out, over the last hundred years, Canadian banks have been building the system that let Stanford and many others like him do this. That system, a complicated maze of tax havens, has become absolutely gargantuan. Like Shaxson said earlier, it's estimated that between 7 to $36 trillion is sitting offshore, which would be as much as 14% of global wealth. That's a pretty significant chunk of change. But what even is a tax haven? While there's no generally agreed upon definition, you can boil it down to two words, escape and elsewhere. In other words, you take your money um, or sometimes yourself or your assets somewhere else in order to, to escape the rules at home that you don't like. And here's the crucial point. It's not just about taxes. Offshore havens specialize in escaping all kinds of rules, environmental, labor, public disclosures, and many specialize in secrecy. Alan Stanford was able to use Antigua to go around money laundering rules. And while the overwhelming amount of business that's done offshore is legal, it has become the crucial pathway for corrupt governments and politicians to siphon off money from their people. When you have a corrupt politician um, making, you know, a million dollars, a billion dollars, whatever, um, with their cronies, they need somewhere to put that money. And time and again, they, they will put it offshore. Almost always they'll put it offshore. Every corrupt kleptocrat you can think of, from Vladimir Putin to Kim Jong-un, have billions stashed away in offshore accounts. And when the Panama and Paradise Papers were revealed, it really was a who's who of the ultra-wealthy and super-powerful from every corner of the globe. Well, at the end of the day, the people who use the system of offshore tax havens are the wealthiest and most powerful people in all of our countries. I mean, this is an issue that affects both poor countries and rich countries. So you're, we're talking about the billionaires, the billionaire classes, and multinational corporations, big banks, are the biggest users of this system. I mean, nearly every large multinational corporation these days will have literally hundreds of subsidiaries in tax havens doing all sorts of different things. Now, you might think that tax havens have been around forever. And sure, people have been hiding their assets in Swiss bank accounts for hundreds of years, but the system we live in today that's so dominated by the offshore world, that's something that really came about in the last 50 years. So how do we get to the point where so much of the world's wealth moves through tiny islands in the Caribbean? Well, that's where Canada comes in.
Over 100 years ago, when much of the Caribbean was still under colonial rule, Britain decided to let Canadian banks run the show. At that time, the colonial bank in the United Kingdom, to put it that way, subcontracted the uh, the management of the financial sector in the British colonies of the Caribbean to Canadian banks. That's Alain Deneau, a Canadian professor and the author of a number of books on tax havens. Because U.S. banks couldn't operate abroad for quite a while, Canadian banks became the indispensable middlemen, providing financial services to big American companies like United Fruit. But they wouldn't provide those same kind of services to the local populations. Uh, and that's why at the beginning of the century, at the 20th century, there were a lot of riots in the, the British colonies of the Caribbeans because small fishermen, small peasants, couldn't have access to loans as easy as the U.S. clients could. By the time the 1950s came around and new stateless capital was zipping around the world, Canadian banks were ready to take advantage. So at that time, you had already Canadian bankers in the Caribbeans uh, that were able to put under pressure the local governments to transform their jurisdiction um, in order to help them using that uh, capital in a totally free manner out of without any kind of public constraint. Take, for example, what happened after the Cuban Revolution in 1959. The American mobsters who had been storing their money in Cuba needed somewhere new to go. So they looked to the Bahamas. And in the Bahamas, what did they found? Canadian banks willing to support them to welcome this capital. People like Donald Fleming, a former minister of finance under Diefenbaker, took their money and their influence to the British colony. And they helped shape the way offshore systems work for the decades that followed. Donald Fleming was representing the Scotia Bank. And Donald Fleming is a former minister of finance under Diefenbaker. And he, he was instrumental and influential in creating laws that allow corporations to register assets without any kind of taxation, without, without any kind of supervision from the state. Fleming once said, quote, I have found that being a banker in Nassau is far more profitable than being minister of finance in frosty Ottawa. That convergence of banking, government, and crime was best embodied by Stafford Sands. He was the Bahamian tourism minister, sat on the board of Royal Bank of Canada, and had deep ties to organized crime, including to famed mobster Mayor Lansky. By the 1980s, the Bahamas had become the main conduit for drugs to come to the United States. And the Americans noticed. The U.S. started to put under pressure not only the Bahamas, but Canada too, because everybody knew that Canada was behind all this. A U.S. Senate report in 1983 noted that, quote, in the Caribbean, one major Canadian international bank has a consistent reputation for encouraging dirty money. They were talking about Donald Fleming's old bank, the Bank of Nova Scotia. And when an American court demanded that the Bank of Nova Scotia release records related to a drug trafficking investigation, the Canadian government denounced it as an attack on our sovereignty. The allegations that plagued the Bank of Nova Scotia in the 1980s bear a striking resemblance to what TD Bank is being accused of today. And the Bahamas wasn't the only place that Canadians helped turn into a tax haven. 
When a Calgary alderman named Jim McDonald came to the Cayman Islands in the 1950s, there was no electricity, only one road, and the mosquitoes were said to be so thick that cows choked on them. But he and a number of other Canadian lawyers, they convinced the government to draft laws to turn it into a tax haven. And that's transformed the Cayman Islands into an international financial hub synonymous with the ultra-wealthy. And then we come to the case of Barbados. Canada created the Barbados as a tax haven in the 1980s. It was during the, the, the short period of time where Joe Clark was prime minister. At the time, Canada was signing a number of tax treaties with countries like South Korea, Spain, and Italy to stop something called double taxation. In general, this is a pretty sensible move. If a company like Bombardier has a subsidiary in Italy and they pay taxes there, this kind of treaty would allow them to tell the CRA that they shouldn't tax the profits from Italy because they've already paid it out to the Italians. But Canada also signed one of those treaties with Barbados, which makes no sense. Canada signed that treaty with a country where the, the income tax rate is less than 1%. So it allowed Canadian corporations that have, for instance, clients abroad to create a subsidiary in the Barbados, to send invoice from that subsidiary, to make as if an activity was occurring there, to uh, register profit in the, the Barbados, to pay, let's say, 0.25% tax on that capital, to send it back to Canada, and to say to the Canadian fiscal authorities, I've already paid tax on that capital, 0.25%. It's disgusting. I won't pay tax twice. That's why Barbados, a country of 250,000 people, gets more Canadian investment, at least on paper, than China or Mexico or France. It's estimated that Canadians have lost taxes on around $80 billion worth of capital because of this arrangement. That's money that the Canadian government could be using on essential services at home. When we wait for hours in the hospital, it's because of tax havens. When we wait for 40 minutes, minus 20 for a bus, it's because of tax havens. When there, there is not in your high school the support you need for your kids, it's because of tax havens. Because tax havens allow wealthy individuals and powerful multinational corporations to rob the country they are in. And Canadian government after Canadian government has really done nothing to change this. The system of tax havens that Canada helped create has serious consequences around the world. And we are in a world, the globalization, in which countries exist to allow wealthy people and powerful corporations to have access formally to impunity. It makes it impossible for countries to govern corporations in any meaningful way. Today, big corporations don't have to ask themselves if what they want to do is legal or not. The question is about where you register your activity, uh, whatever it is, so that it becomes legal. The story of tax havens is very complicated. Honestly, you could do an entire series just on the offshore system, and you'll still only barely scratch the surface. And the offshore world does have its defenders. That includes Martin Kenny, the lawyer suing TD Bank. He points out that what attracts criminals to the offshore world is not that they're lawless places where anything goes. It's that the laws and regulations are actually strong. No 
thief will hand the proceeds of his thievery to another thief. That's why places that don't have a long tradition of the rule of law don't end up becoming tax havens. They're drawn to our systems because they need to preserve the value that they've taken and hide it. So the paradox is that they're hiding in places where they're exposed because we have systems where they can't easily bribe judges. And that's what allows a fraud investigator like Kenny to be able to do his work. And while those subtleties are important, we shouldn't lose the forest for the trees. The offshore system means that people and companies who are wealthy enough play by a set of rules that the rest of us don't have access to. But honestly, we can't just blame those small places like the Caymans or the British Virgin Islands. You know where the two biggest tax havens in the world are? They're not in the Caribbean. It's the old city of London in England and the state of Delaware. Remember Ugland House? The one I told you about at the top of the show, with the 20,000 companies registered to its address? Well, there's actually another building in Wilmington, Delaware, and it has 285,000 companies registered to its address. When the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers were leaked, the world's attention was focused in on tax havens in a way it never had before. But little appears to have changed. And I think there's good reason to be pessimistic. When a system benefits exclusively the richest and most powerful people in the world, it makes it just that much harder to do anything about it. And that's your episode of Commons for the week. I'm Arshi Mann. This was our third episode in our series on corruption, so let us know what you think so far. You can tweet us at Candleland Commons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me at arshi at candlelandshow.com. This episode was produced by TK Matunda. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, go check out patreon.com slash candleland. Help us out however you can. And you can also go to our website, candlelandshow.com, where we'll post some links to other work that helped inform this story. And if you like stories about power, money, and Canadian politics, you absolutely should subscribe to Candleland's new podcast, Thunder Bay. The first three episodes are already out. <laughs>